His love towards us. Verse number 7 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, here in His love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. And let's look here, first of all, verse number 10. Herein is love. He's saying, here is love. This is what it looks like. This is what, this is what love really boils down to. We've already seen that God is love. He is a source of it. He is a sustainer of it. He is the giver of love. It, it, love is a, a gift itself that we can enjoy His love towards us, but that in turn that we can love Him and that we can love others. And so I want to begin by looking here that at, in verse number 10, here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. This is important uh, to, to kind of nail down to understand a little bit more. And what we do and what we find here is a deeper understanding of the love of God, that His love toward us was not dependent upon us, but it was all dependent upon Him. And praise God for that. He loves us with a perfect love, with a love that looks at us in our sin and yet would still die for us, yet would still pay the price for our sins. He loves the unlovable. He gives Himself to those who even reject Him and rebel against Him and disobey Him. His love is unending. Here's what we find. He says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one that takes the mysterious and reveals it, that takes the invisible and makes it visible. Everything that we must know is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially when we're dealing with love. God is love. This is to say as well that the Lord Jesus Christ is love. He is the revealer of love. He is the one that God demonstrates His love through. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without Jesus, we do not know love, nor do we, nor can we love God. There is countless people today who believe that they have always loved God. I know it sounds spiritual to say such. I know that it sounds like a nice sentiment, but it is unbiblical. It is illogical if we truly understand who God is and who we are in our sin. All right, This is what this means. You and I did not love God until we had been born of His love. Meaning this, we, did not, we were not able to love Him until we had surrendered to His love for us. He has loved us so that we can love Him. All right? And I know that this gets a, a little bit um, argumentative with a lot of folks, but I want, it really boils down to this. The Lord loved us so that we can love Him. The Lord chose us so that we can choose Him. All right? He loved us first. Not that we loved Him. And He loved us not because we loved Him, but because that's who He is. Because God is love, He loved us. He loved you even when you were full of your sin. And He loved you enough to send His Son to be the propitiation for your sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Here Lloyd-Jones writes about this, and I think he's, he's, he's on a, dead on about this. He says, according to the Bible, far from being lovable and loving, men and women by nature hate God. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? But that's the reality of what the Bible teaches us. 
The Bible tells us throughout the Scripture that we are without Christ. We're at enmity with God. It means we're enemies. We're against Him. You don't love someone that you're fighting a war against, right? You're fighting a war. You're trying to conquer them, right? How about the Bible that tells us in Psalms, why do the heathen rage? We're literally raging against God. Why do they hate God? Why do they spit back at, at, at Him? Right? All these things. But we're against Him. There is a... In sinful man, there is not a natural inclination or desire to love God. If someone does not know God, they do not love God. If someone is not born again, if someone has never come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, then they do not love Him no matter what they say. I want you to know, there are many people who are very sincere in their faith, but if your faith is in the wrong object, if it is in the wrong person, if it is in anything or anyone outside of Christ and Christ alone, you do not have a love for God. Even the most sweet-hearted, seemingly people, right? Seemingly sweet-hearted people, they are not born again. There is no real love for the Lord. Our love for God comes after and because of our salvation. It is a fruit of our salvation. Now, he goes on and continues. He says, here in His love, not that we loved God. That is, it is not the case that we in our natural state loved God and He responded to our love. The picture of the Bible is not that people are ever seeking for God because they love Him. Let's pause there for a moment. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there's none that seek. There's none that seek the Lord. There's none that seek after Him. Who does the seeking? It's the Lord that leaves the 99 and comes and calls His sheep. That comes and calls back to the fold. That comes and calls them to uh, and draws us to salvation. It says, people by nature do not love God. According to the Bible, by nature and as the result of sin in the fall, they are enemies of God. So what we really find is this, our love for God and for others, and true love, what real love is, what biblical love is, biblical love is a response by faith and trusting God's loving sacrifice for us. So, if we want to understand our love towards God and our love towards people and how how we should love God and how we should love people around us, then we must look at how He loves us. How does He love us? He loves us when we've been unlovable. He loves us when we were His enemy. He loves us when we have rebelled against Him. But it is His love and His goodness that draws us to repentance. It is His love that we respond to then in turn to be able to love Him. He loves us not because we loved Him, but why do we love Him? Because He loved us. Right? Does that make sense? So for God, in His perspective, uh, uh, above all things, above all of His creation, He loves us when we don't love Him back. That's what real love really looks like, by the way. That's what agape, God-like love, is. And so that's what our love is supposed to be for one another. This is why Jesus can then say, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Look around, right? Love those that persecute you, Right? Those that curse you, don't curse back. Right, this is some hard stuff. But when we look to Jesus and when we see what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we see that that is the love of God poured out upon those who did not love Him back. God was never dependent upon our love neither, by the way. All right? Look at this. If we understand a little bit. I don't like to get too much into it because I don't want to confuse anybody. But if you look at Greek or Roman mythology, it's kind of boiled down to this. They had all their different gods and goddesses, right? 
And they're up there on, on Mount Olympus and all their different spots. And they do all their different little things, all their little places where they're subjugated to, where they, where they um, are the God of water, God of this, God of that, God of that, right? Or goddess of this, okay? Now, all of them in the Roman and Greek mythology, they, and pretty much, to be honest, any other pagan religion, the gods and goddesses of their religions were dependent upon the praise of the people to stay in power, to stay in control. When we talk about the God of the Bible, we talk about the only true God that there is. When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, when we talk about the triune God of eternity to eternity, the One who spoke and created all things and holds all things, sustains all things, and will one day make all things new. When we talk about the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture, never one time has He been dependent upon His existence. He's never been dependent upon us. He's never been dependent upon His creation. Rather, it's the opposite. His creation is dependent upon Him. God remains God. He doesn't change. Who He was before Genesis 1-1 is who He will be after Revelation 22. It's who He is. He will not change. Now this should bring joy to our heart because this means this. Though I change, though I falter, though I have my ups and I have my downs, I have my highs, I have my lows, the Lord still yet loves me. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's look at this propitiation here. We can see a little bit about it all throughout the Scripture about what this means here. Sorensen writes, says, The coming of Jesus Christ was to be the propitiation for our sins. The word translated as propitiation, or helasmos, has the sense of an appeasement or satisfaction. Appeasement or satisfaction of what? An appeasement and satisfaction of the justice of God. Even of the wrath of God. We forget this, right? We've just been told here by John that God is love. Earlier on, he told us that God is light. Now because of that, there would be some in John's day, and there's many in our day as well, who look at that and they say, well, because God is light and because God is love, that just means He'll overlook our sin because He's so loving. No, it does not. God is a just God. God is a, a God who is righteous and holy in all that He does and all that He is. And so in this, when we actually think about what does it mean for God to be light and God to be love? Well, for God to be love, this means that He loves with an unconditional, a perfect love, a true love, one that we can try to mimic or mirror, but we never quite get there. He loves with a love that loves people that... Excuse me. Don't love him back. Kimmy, could you get my water? Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Y'all give her a hand there. What a toss. <laughs> For our next trick. <laughs> I just finished one a minute ago. I'll take one, though. <laughs> oh, all right. Oh, well, we got an... <laughs> We're having another one. <laughs> I'll take whatever. Well, he's got all kinds of... If y'all ever want candy, y'all come see Jeff. Thank you. Y'all give him a hand. What a trick. <laughs> all right. All right, bring out the rings of fire and we'll jump through those next. All right. I'll tell you what, it's going to be a... It's going to be a magic trick if I get through it. All right, here we go. Where was I at? 
Okay, appreciation. That's what I thought. I was testing you guys. <laughs> All right, propitiation. When we look at this, we understand that God is love and then God is light. To understand propitiation, to understand that God is light is this. God is light. He is holy. He is pure. There is nothing wrong in Him. So, if He is light and He is love, when He looks at our sin, what must He do? Well, in His love, you and I would think His love will just overlook it. But because of His light, that, that's who He is, His pureness and His justice that is involved in that cannot overlook such, right? Let me ask you this. Let's break it down to our level of ourselves. If we had a murder trial here in town, right, and the guy had murdered, I don't know, 38 people, right? That sounds like a lot to me. Uh, and he was very guilty. He even said I was guilty, right? Would you think there'd be a good judge that said, well, you know, before, he, before we found out he was a murderer, I watched him walk a little old lady across the street. And I think we should just... He's probably a really good guy. He just had a hard time, a bad day. What would y'all think about that judge if he let him go? Right, thumbs down? I'm giving two thumbs down, right? right we're probably going to uh, seek some justice other ways, right? Y'all know how mountain folk are. Let's, I mean, come on now. We would seek justice. We would cry out for justice to be served, wouldn't we? See, God is judge, and only God is judge. And there's a terrible phrase today with our young folks. Only God can judge me. Anyone ever heard that one before? Right? There's even people who get it tattooed on their necks and, and chest and stuff. You see it in mug shots if you look at mug shots. It's always people like, only God can judge me. Yeah, and that judge you just walked out of the courtroom too. But, but you know something, if we understand that only God can judge us, right? If you hold to that, that ought to make you a whole lot more feared. That ought to make you a whole lot more scared to understand that God is going to judge you and He's going to judge you righteously. Right? Now, when we understand this, we go, so how do we balance this out? How do we, how do we understand God's light, right? His justice, His righteousness, His holiness. How do we understand God's love, His mercy, His grace, all wrapped up in there? How, do, how does that balance out? Well, when we see Jesus... When we see the cross, what Jesus has done for us to be the propitiation for our sins is that He satisfies both the love and the light of God. Because Jesus is the manifestation of the light and the love of God. Because He is God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the very same one who has come to die, to express light and love. In the world. He even said... I am the light of the world. And as His love, His love was not even one that was just spoken, but it was demonstrated as He willingly laid down His life. Jesus is the one Himself who said, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I take it back up. He does this because it satisfies God's righteous judgment, but it also satisfies God's love towards sinners, towards rebels towards those who are wicked in need of His mercy and grace. So when we find the cross here, when we understand that He is the propitiation for our sins, it is literally to satisfy, to appease, even to turn away the wrath of God by a satisfactory substitute, His idea. He is the substitute for us. He is the one, and the only one that could ever satisfy God's light and love. He is the only one that could ever satisfy or pay the price for sin. Not you, not I. Not enough goats and bulls could ever be sacrificed to do so. 
It is only the pure and perfect Lamb of God that could be sacrificed to take away the world's sins. And He did so, notice it says, for our sins. Because it was our sins that kept us from knowing God, walking with God, having fellowship with God, being reconciled to God. It was our sins that had to be crucified. It was our sins that had to be paid for, but yet there was nothing that you and I could do to atone for our sins. And so Jesus, as the propitiator, as a mediator, as a substitute, takes our place. He is the one who bears the wrath of God. Now there is a whole lot of folks today who don't like talking about that sort of thing. They think, and there's a, a phrase that they use today, and they say, well, that is cosmic child abuse. Boy, doesn't that sound big and, and all sorts of things, right? What it is is, is it's folks who are uncomfortable with their sin. It's folks who are uncomfortable with the holiness of God. It's folks who are uncomfortable. And these are Christian people, by the way, who, who don't like this sort of phrase. They want to get it out of teaching. They want to get it out of songs. It wasn't just a few years ago, the Presbyterian Church, I uh, forget which, which side of it, but nevertheless, when they were getting new hymn books, they wanted to take out, out of several of the... Uh, uh, several of the newer hymns and other hymns that talked about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, Jesus bore the wrath, stuff like that, because they just thought, well, that's just, it's too, it's too much. If Jesus doesn't do that, we don't have salvation. If Jesus does not and is not the propitiator of our sins, then you and I would still be lost undone. It is God alone who can truly satisfy His justice system. Because no one else is perfect, no one else can be perfect. But Jesus was not just a good man, he was not just a good teacher or a good prophet or even some sort of healer. He is, was, and forever shall be God. And because he is the God man, he alone is able to bear the weight of our sins, to bear the wrath of God, that it would abide upon him upon the cross and not upon you and I who have trusted in him. However, the truth remains, though, that the wrath of God still abides on those who have not trusted. And so there are some who would take this, well, since He's the propitiation for sins, then that means that all of us, a whole world universal salvation. No, no, no. Notice He says, for our sins. Who is our? Who's John writing to? He's writing to believers. He's the propitiation for your sins and my sins if you trusted in Jesus. But those who have not trusted in Christ, they don't understand what that means for Him to be the propitiator. They have not bowed their knee to this one. They have not had their sins forgiven and covered. The price has been paid. But they have not surrendered. God lovingly poured out His wrath upon His own Son. And the Son bore the wrath of the Father for the sins of man to turn God's wrath away in order to offer a sufficient sacrifice for sins for all who will believe. And that's key there. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us you were bought with a price. What a price it was. Boyce writes, if God had merely sent Jesus to teach us about Himself, that would have been wonderful enough. It would have been far more than what we deserved. If God had sent Jesus simply to be our example, that would have been good too. and would have had some value. But the wonderful thing is that God did not stop with these, but rather sent His Son not merely to teach or to be our example, but to die the death of a felon that He might save us from sin. You realize that Jesus died on the cross 
viewed by man as someone who had done wrong, someone who had done ill, someone who had done wicked things, because only people who had done wicked things were crucified. Jesus faced the worst death, the worst death penalty possible. But even more so, he died innocent. He was killed unjustly. The just one died for the unjust. The sinless died for the sinful. That's the love of God. He says then in verse 11, if we understand that propitiation, if we understand what Jesus has done for us, he says then in verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, ought also, uh, we ought also to love one another. Now, if we understand the heaviness, and by the way, when we think about the cross, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, it should be heavy to us, but yet it should also be light. And it should lighten our hearts, right? It should burden us in the sense that we understand the weight of what Jesus accomplished for us that we couldn't pay. But in the same breath, it should also make our hearts soar with praise to God. Look at what Jesus did for me. But as well, look at what Jesus did because of me. Not for His sin, but for mine. Because God loved us, He says, also ought we to love one another? If God can love sinful man, if God can love the rebel, if God can love the blasphemer, if God can love the liar and the murderer and the thief in such a way as to have His Son die to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, then how should we love one another? Right? It's not even just how should we love one another, but that we also must love one another. We ought to. How could we not? If God could love sinful man, and then you and I can't love our brother or sister who might wrong us one time, think about this. I know more Baptists that are bitter than joyful. I know more Bible-believing Baptists who have more anger and guilt and grudges against people. Yet God set them free. God's redeemed them. God saved them. God's forgiven them. God's cast their sin as far as the east is from the west. It's blotted out, if you will. But not you and I. We often hold on to these things. Some of us, sadly, keep accounts against people a whole lot longer than God ever did. <clears throat> if we understand the great demonstration of God's love towards sinners, how could we not in turn love God and share the same sacrificial love to one another? If He has loved us in such a way, how could we then not respond by loving Him? How could we not respond by repentance and faith? Of course, the answer is clearly because what God has done, we should naturally, logically respond by trusting Him. Putting our trust in Him because we have no other hope outside of that. But even more so then, for our day-to-day -day level, if He's done that, not only how can we not love Him, but how can we not love one another? Christians should be known for their joy and their peace. They should be known for their love. A real love. A love for the Lord. A love for souls. Part of the great thing of revival is that we get, hopefully, a little bit revived about our love for lost souls that need saving. 
We get a renewed love for one another. Sometimes we need that. Because sometimes we get all upset and all in the flesh about people. Somebody left church over a bad reason. Maybe even a dumb reason. Maybe even an unbiblical reason. And they go away. And then they come back. Because that's what we do around here. Come on. (laughs) And what do we do? Did you see who came to church today? Come on, we've been there, haven't we? You know something? This is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. But yet, it's a command. We're not asked politely by God, you want to think about loving people? Love them. And if God can love not just other people the way He has, if God can love me, I know me. (coughs) Excuse me. I know my thoughts. I know my motives at times. I know my words that I say that are bad words. And I say them sometimes. God sees my heart. Yet He still loves me. We see folks on the outside only. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know if they're hurting. We don't know what they really feel. We just base maybe a bad look or a bad day or a bad outfit and we go, well, hmm. And we stop short of loving them. And John has talked all about this chapter after chapter. If you don't have love for God and you don't have love for your brothers and sisters in the faith, then you don't know God. In proportion, as we appreciate God's love to us, we love Him and also love the brethren, the children by regeneration of the same God, the representatives of the unseen God. Notice that. We'd say, oh, my body's a temple. I've got to take care of it. we say, oh, This building is where the church gathers. That's what makes it the church, by the way. But we forget. We want to take care of our body. We want to take care of ourself, our family. We want to make sure that the church looks good and the building looks good on the outside and everything else. But we often forget to take care of one another. We're representatives to one another for God and to this lost world for God. We are called, as the Lord has loved us, to then do the same to others. As God loves me, I must love. God's invisible and immeasurable love is now seen and measured in us. Just as Jesus revealed the light and the love of God because He is the light and the love of God, it's who He is. So now you and I, who know Jesus, who are in Christ, who have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, God's invisible and measurable love is now seen and measured in us. Stott writes, that is the unseen God who once revealed himself in his son now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. Our love for one another is evidence of God's indwelling presence. I believe the reason that many churches don't seem to have the presence of God anymore, the reason why many pastors don't seem to have the presence of God anymore, 
The reason why many believers don't seem to have the presence of God anymore is because we have left the presence of our love, true love for God. Jesus warned the first church there. In Revelation chapter 2, He said, you're doing pretty good. You know what to say. you got the right words. He says, but you've left your first love. And I think today that perhaps the reason why we don't experience the presence of God in ways that we used to, perhaps the reason why people come and go in the way in which they do is because we don't have the love of God like we once had. Or we don't share the love of God like we once did. We like the love of God to be poured out upon us, absolutely. But we have a harder time pouring the love of God out upon other people, especially when we know, oh, and we know how bad they are. They just don't deserve. Well, neither do I. But God still did. God's love perfected in us. He says, so we ought to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Sorensen writes, the word translated as perfected in this context can have the sense of developed, matured, accomplished. Accordingly, as we love others, the love of God is further developed in us. Every believer is called to maturity. Sadly, we have countless believers who have known the Lord for decades and are still babes in Christ. One, because we have shallow teaching and preaching. Two, because believers very rarely study the Bible for themselves to do their own work, which they're called to do in the Bible, by the way. Every person in this room is responsible for yourself. You are as mature in the faith as you want to be. You are as close to Jesus as you want to be. Don't, don't mistake that. But every believer should be growing and maturing in the Lord. And one of the which ways that we see that we are maturing and growing is through our love. We should be more loving as we grow older and more mature. Older saints, you should not be known as folks who have gotten more hardened or more unloving towards one another. I know Sunday school is preaching to the choir. I know Sunday school is mostly preaching to those who would fall under the category of elderly saint, except for Doug, because I know he wouldn't take that. <laughs> but you know something? It don't matter whether you're 7, 70, or 700, or feel like it. If you're in Christ, we should not be growing older and colder. We should not be getting more hardened towards lost people or towards one another. I want to be an older saint that knows God, loves people, that people aren't afraid to walk up to because you look like you're sucking on persimmons. I want to be that old saint of God that people go, that's what it means to be a saint of God. Here, to wrap this up and put a pretty little bow on it, I want to give you the words of a commentator who really summed up this whole passage um, in a much better way than I can. It says the whole paragraph, meaning from 7 all the way to where we are, to verse 12. The whole paragraph is concerned with God's love, and we must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love, which originates in Himself and was manifested in His Son, is made complete in His people. It is brought to perfection within us. God's love for us is perfected only when it was reproduced in us, or as it may mean, among us in the Christian fellowship. 
It is these three truths about the, love, about the love of God which John uses as inducements to brotherly love. We are to love each other. First, because God is love. Second, because God loved us. And thirdly, because if we do love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Let me ask you today, and we're going to pray. Do you have that same sort of love for God and love for His people that you used to? If not, it's really as simple as asking the Lord, remind me of your love for me. Remind me love for people. We need to love one another. It's simple Sunday school stuff, isn't it? And yet, at 10.30, somebody's probably going to walk through that back door and you've got one of two options. Pucker up your face or love them. What will we do? I want to love like the Lord loves. Don't you? Let's pray. God, we come to you. We thank you for